It's PillPod. We are podcasting messages of hope and delusion into the void. Flick your balls a little bit. It's your Friday critical theory or philosophy or hour of lib takes podcast, depending on your perspective. Although we are down a lib today. Yeah. It is I, Victor, and Eric. Hello. I am outnumbered by the radicals. The postmodern neo-Marxist your daddy warned you about. More radical. <laughs> How's the mood? How's the temperature? I don't I don't really want updates on your life, but I'm personally I'm in one of my bi- biannual depressive states. Um and I think it was caused by watching The Matrix and Spider-Man. They were that bad, eh? Also all the trailers before Spider-Man which were 100% for sequels or remakes. That's the future. I get, I get- I get the Matrix, but what's got you down about Spider-Man? Mostly that they, there are no films anymore. There's nothing, films are gone. We're just left with content and I am asked to like it and enjoy it. By who? By, you know, the big other. Oh, (laughs) I see. I did not The compelled enjoyment of mediocrity. Well, you know the premise, right? Well, no. Sony just used all of their IP to try to make like a a Marvel thing, and even though half of those Spider-Man movies suck balls, uh, we're supposed to like them when they're all in the same movie together. I don't know, man. I don't watch any of these superhero movies. The only superhero movies I watch are like the Batman ones when it was Dark Knight, <clears throat> and this new one. I guess I don't know who the it's who's the new Batman in the new trailer. I don't know. It's that I think the I, I think vampire I have a, I have, movie guy. Yeah, right, right. Robert I have just Pattinson. like a weird snobby attitude that I just I'm I'm above superhero movies, so I don't watch them. I think uh, Into the Spider Verse is definitely worth a watch, but I haven't seen the new one. But that one leaves you on a kind of hopeful note. I don't know about this new one. I think boycotting superhero movies is what I have to do. Like I I feel the compulsion because that is the thing that you talk about in the public commons and we have so so few avenues of public commons that s- superhero movies are one of the main publics that we have i guess so is that true yeah i guess it is i don't know i mean, I mean it's I do, privatized I- we don't have a political landscape particularly in in lockdown but even outside of lockdown so superhero movies and like the super bowl a few of those things are the things that I participate in against my better judgment, but I think uh, I think it's the Super Bowl. Time. You participate in that? I think I always watch it. Really? I didn't know that. That's for funny. the commercials. That's kind of the only sport I watch all year is just the Super Bowl. <laughs> Football? That's funny. I had no idea that you watched any of that stuff. I feel like you've never you've never said that out loud, or I've never heard you say that out loud. Oh, that sounds familiar. This being infantilized. Maybe maybe that's just what it's like to be thirty. But the infantilization oh, yeah, well, gonna... of the, of everything. Baudrillard Bo- already talked about this in 1980, so maybe it's not. How new. how come you? By the way, how come you don't like the new the new season of The Expanse? Like I've been watching it and I think it's fine. But I remember last episode you just said you hated. it. Is that another thing contributing to your depressive state? <laughs> they pulled a Game of Thrones. <laughs> like like Game of Thrones, it drew it's from. Rushed. It drew from good source material, and then the first few seasons were more careful about drawing from the source material and what made it good. Now The Expanse is just a plot show, and the plot isn't even that good. The The nuances of politics, the characters' motivations, all of that is just gone now for some reason. So, 
Maybe because they're rushing it, I guess, because they're trying to like finish the the show. I guess I don't know. Like there, there's like what nine books in that series, and they're on. I don't know what season it is, six. So I don't even know why they're opting to rush it. Maybe it's not popular enough. But yeah, maybe. We've already done some stuff on superheroes. Yeah, back back when we were talking about phenomenology, I think it definitely improved my state of mind. And now I'm just back on my phone and looking at what there is to talk about. And despite our best intentions, it appears we'll all just tread water in ideology fluid until we die. I saw someone post, I saw someone tweet, um, most podcasts are too long. Um, and I wonder what we think about that. Most podcasts most, in general or most of ours are too long? Just in general. Just in general. This person was commenting on that. And I don't And I wonder what the... I mean, I feel like the hour 15 that we usually hit seems like a reasonable number. Um, but, but why I would you wonder, feel just, like you had to listen to the whole thing? Is this like a, the compulsion of the commons that I just brought up that you have to finish it? If you're bored, go find another well, I, podcast. I, I will say that I think that there's something... But sometimes I do feel like I'll see like some podcast episode come out or some discussion and it'll be like two hours and a half. And I'm just like, it makes me like not want to start. It's like in some ways there's just like, I think there's an intuitive appeal to like looking and being like, it's, it's realistic for me to be able to fit that in and finish it. Right. But to be like, well, I'll start it. And then like, if I get through it, I'll just move on. If not, I'll move on. That's not as appealing. Right. Like when I see it in my like feed, there's a nice, there's a, there's an intuitive appeal to being like, I can complete this, like a completionist appeal. But if I see something that's like too long, it's like, it's a disincentive from even starting it. Right. It's like, I don't want to start this thing. That's three hours. Like what, like, what, like when am I, I'm, I'm just not even going to start it. Right. So sure. I, I think three hours is too long, but by the same token, when I see an episode that's 30 minutes, I'm also disincentivized to click on it because that's, oh, I agree. Three that's minutes not a big enough yeah, block of time. I can't imagine there'd be much substance in something like that unless it's really, really tight and quick. But I would I would like some feedback from the audience about optimal lengths. I do think that we're pretty much hitting that sweet spot, but I just I just thought I would bring it up since I saw that. Our conversation kind of dictates the length. It's almost like we're done talking at an hour and fifteen. 75 minutes yeah the material is kind of we just we just go hey if we said everything we want to say okay it's getting long anyway but it depends on the format too right with a, we have a conversational podcast where we need to fit three or four people's ideas into a, a, a segment so i mean it shakes out to about an hour 15 but you know my listening habits are different right i put things on while i'm doing things like for instance i like to listen to like audiobooks through podcasting mm-hmm. and then I listen to uh David Harvey's Marxist lectures on on Capital and they're about two and a half hours. So I throw it on, I go shopping. I don't sit down and be like, this is what's gonna entertain me for the next hour and a half. I do oh, things yeah. at the same time, which is how I assume is a major way people listen to podcasts. If you're just sitting there listening to it as a form of entertainment, then you get the same complaints about movies. Oh, that movie was too long, that movie was too short. I felt like they could have cut that down a bit. It's it's that's it true. depends that's on the true. format, really. Like maybe for our podcast, how long is a good time for this kind of podcast? No, no. I I mean I I agree. I I think I mean I'm, I also fit in my my listening habits kind of in the same way. But it's just I'm usually not out and about, especially now with like more lockdowns. 
that long. So it's nice to be able to like have an episode that I can finish in that time usually, or at least be close to finishing it. Hey, it's anything. You're doing laundry, you're cleaning dishes, you're walking the dog, you throw on your headphones in a podcast, mm-hmm. boom. If it's two and a half hours, then you get a lot of work done and maybe accidentally fall into a Twitter hole or something. All right, regardless of what you are doing, listener, laundry, walking your dog, today we are looking at a new word We like to think of ourselves as your uh, academic proxies. So we're going to start with a bit of academic critique. Um, But the new word for the day is techno-feudalism, which has been making its way around coming out of Yanni Varoufakis' mouth. Yeah, Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis is how you say it? Yeah, Giannis Varoufakis, former former um, finance minister of Greece during the financial crisis. Oh, I totally thought Yanni was the Greek pronunciation of that. Okay. I thought you were just being cheeky and giving him a little nickname there, shortening his name. You were like, good old Yanni. Me and Yanni were good friends. That could be like insider pronunciation. I think in Greece, in Greek, in the Greek language, they pronounce their, their hard S there at the end. They don't, I don't think they would, they would do silent IS at the end. All right. Well, I apologize for being phonetically ignorant well it's a new word techno feudalism and speaking of new words a lot of the shit like trying to read new journal articles this is a a bit of a personal frustration of mine is so many writers trying to make a name or be cutting edge by making up words and throwing them against the wall and hoping they stick and like catch on and it's if they do catch on you kind of have a career if enough people are are citing you that's one of the measures of academic success so coining the right word at the right time is a fucking great career move but these days it's adding a lot of prefixes like neo hyper post to words to freshen them up neo materialism is one that i I, I came across lately and I don't know why it's neo-materialism as opposed to just materialism. Was there a problem with old materialism or well, hyper it's... hyper object? I know Eric, you like the term hyper object, but is it really required? I'm not sure. It's doing the citations collection work. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's pretty good um, in terms of new materialism, right? That's a, it's a kind of new, uh, it's, a, it's a new theoretical paradigm that's coming out of um, people like, you know, exploring post-Marxist, post-liberal kinds oh, there you of go discourses, again. right? Adding posts. Well, I'm using it as a kind of temporal thing, I guess, because, you know, post-Marxism would be, you know. Those... What about meta-Marxism? Where's meta-Marxism at? I don't even give a fuck about meta stuff. I guarantee you if you search that, it's a thing. Post-Marxism <laughs> is just like kind of moving past Marxism, trying to look at other theorists and trying to move past the sort of Marxist framework, whether or not you agree that's a worthwhile endeavor is besides the point. That's just giving the name to the new movement. Old name, new movement. Why don't you just take Marx's name off of it then? But new materialism specifically focuses on like the non-discursive and the bodily and the phenomenological. And it puts emphasis on different things. Marx itself out is a new paradigm. You can read collections of books right now that are written about it. Do you see this a lot in political theory, Victor? I'm sure, I mean, I, I guarantee that if I search in hyper hyper democracy there's going to be something that comes up i mean there there is 
So I just searched, I just searched metamarxism, by the way, and I found the abstract to a chapter in some book. And it's like examination of any total explanation of all that is, is, is faces seemingly uh, insup insuperable difficulties. Insuperable. Is that, is that a word? Superable? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Insuperable difficulties multiplied in the present instance by the claim uh, to do so in the context of the interplay of the four principal streams of contemporary thought. The inside examiner can be trapped by the totality of the explanation and by his commitment to the view in question. The outsider can be accused of dogmatism by right, applying something foreign. I think that's enough of that. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> See, here's the problem. That is not, that is not an explanation <clears throat> of what, of what metamarxism is. That's, that's weird. Also, all the ones with postmodernism, those are the most blatant because there's post-postmodernism, trans-postmodernism, digimodernism, pseudo-modernism, ultra-modernism, and now metamodernism is something that uh, some group is trying to make happen, and a few people have asked me about it. Just don't worry about it, okay? Postmodernism is not done if it even started. Modernism was not modern anyway, so yeah, people. we should just call it all. Logos was wrong all along. I think people also just enjoy, like, I guess there's an there's there might just be a kind of pleasure associated with co with term coinage um and like there and you know some of it might be aesthetic some of it there might be some utility to it in the sense that like you're putting your thumb on on like a, a very nuanced specific way of, of 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 identifying a phenomenon although broadly i would say i'm sympathetic to your kind of um intuition pills that there's there there's also something kind of like yeah i don't know what it, it is there 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 does sometimes you get an odor of like oh i'm just trying to find my space there's like an incentive i guess to be unique in academia and to be like i've coined something right so there, there is that incentive as well you know there's one term this is like kind of tangentially related but sometimes i find it irritating or puzzling the way words from academia end up getting co-opted in certain kind of activist spaces so one observation I've had, and, you know, I would actually love kind of an audience member to correct me on this, but has anybody noticed that when like leftist, like BLM protesters or, or like people who are, who are involved in anti-racism, right? And as someone myself, I'm obviously sympathetic and support anti-racism, but I notice that there's this way in which they talk about black bodies, right? They'll say like black bodies instead of black people. And I don't know if anyone else like, and I feel like that's from academia. That's like some Foucauldian thing that came over from like the way bodies are treated by like power structures. Yeah, biopolitics. But I find it, I guess I just find it puzzling because it seems so dehumanizing to me. Like, shouldn't we in our discourse be talking about black people, not black bodies? Like, I don't understand. So somebody explained to me sort of like the, I would love to hear like an explanation for why it's more humanizing or like furthers anti-racism to talk about black bodies instead of black people i don't know it's confusing it's because you're a lib that's why yeah it's because they're not emphasizing the person personality personological right those are those are liberal concepts those are bourgeois concepts they're emphasizing materiality of the body the embodiment that is required of every consciousness to be embodied but also the way that the body can be uh, inscribed like a surface with meaning, right? You know, like marginalized peoples are marginalized bodies because of certain 
features, certain ways they look, certain things like that. So when you're talking about bodies, I guess you're 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 adopting that sort of yeah yes Foucauldian kind of theoretical heritage, but it has a use. It has a point. Is talking about persons would be assuming like a liberal subject, and that's not what we want to do. Well, we I mean, <clears throat> I understand the theoretical utility, but I but I don't understand the kind of like activist utility. Well, from the position, like the Foucauldian position, the the state that you're dealing with or the power discourse wouldn't see the people, they would see bodies. So I think you're kind of right in that it it's meant to be dehumanizing so that you can analyze the vision that the state has of bodies. But I don't think you would well, reassert. Yeah, you, you're, you're pointing out a paradox. You wouldn't call yourself the body because that is the same dehumanizing that the state originally performed. Well, that's the thing. So that's exactly my point. Like, so I understand like the, the theoretical point about like the way the state like see, but it's just funny to hear activists who they're in, presumably their whole goal is to like humanize, is to like bring back, but they continue to talk about like people being marginalized as bodies. And it's just strange to me because shouldn't the goal, like the kind of activist utility be to like actually humanize and raise up and like stop perpetuating this biopolitical phenomenon or whatever. So I don't know. It's just, it just seems strange to me. And that's where like, I feel like there's a bleed from academic discourse and it's like, Oh, you're just like doing the thing that you're criticizing in a way, like inadvertently. I mean, I'd like to see, we can, we have to put a pin in this because if you're going to interpret something, you actually have to have an example in front of you. And just because, the term is used doesn't mean that yeah, yeah, everybody no, but, knows but, but, but like, exactly what it's used for. But there is an activist position, which would be to describe yourself as the way that the state describes you self-reflexively, which would be to account for your experience by the way that you are not the way you see yourself as a person, but by the way you are disciplined. And the interpolation of that would imply the critique. So I, I don't think that would be an incorrect yeah. usage. I mean, it's a theoretical point, right? All language is theoretically laden. And when you're doing when you're doing activism, right, you need theory to guide your actions. Just like when you go into the market to buy things, you generally have a theory of how the market works and how you can get what you want out of it. It doesn't make sense to say to go into somewhere without a theory of what's going on or about how to address the issues. So, I mean, the sorts of things that activists choose from the theory world that's most conducive to their activity tends to be the language of materiality, right? Which takes the form of bodies in the Foucauldian heritage, or if you're a Marxist, it takes the form of, of labor, which is a productive activity, which again involves materialism, right? So it emphasizes the materialism instead of dematerializing people by referring to them as subjects or persons or minds or whatever, right? You materialize because it's the material conditions that determine whether or not a person can be free, whether or not a person will be considered a person in the first place. Right. So bodies is a, is a kind of, yes, it's theoretically laden, but it also guides the activities to put it to put a pin in it. I just I found like a, I just did a quick Google search. I found like a medium.com article from I, I don't know. 
Aisha C. I think I'm not sure if she if she, what she, what else she's written, but like she has a think piece that just says, "Can we stop referring to black people as black bodies, please?" So I guess I'm not the only one who's had who's made that observation. Um, the words we have haven't accomplished so much, but if we invent some more, it doesn't cost anything to do it. Uh, fallow capitalism. We don't have that one yet. I don't think, do we? Fallow capitalism. Full, I'll Google full, it. Fallogocentrism. Oh my god! I just searched it. We do have fallow capitalism. Of course, we have. Yeah, everything. I, know. I was referring to uh, like Derrida did this to great success and fame and and fortune, maybe. So I, it's like he he's part, partially responsible for this. Fallogocentrism is one of the grievous uh, neologisms. Why don't we just do ad libs? We could just do ad libs where we combine a prefix with like a critical theory word, and then you have to come up with the definition of it. There's like neo, fallow, <clears throat> super, meta. Actually, no, let's just do this right now. I'm going to go. <laughs> we'll do ad capitalism, pragmatism, subjectivity, fascism, and then you have to come. I'm going to go get a D6. Actually, hold on. I'm gonna make oh you. I'm gonna good. make you come up with a definition of a word. Oh my god, this is like kind of like a poetry word game. <laughs> we'll just let him cut out the uh, part where he's going to get stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, this this is actually happening. Okay. So I got a bunch of words here. Sorry. Uh, I'll just cut out. I'll just cut this bit out. Um. Eric, you have to do the first word. Actually, I'll give oh, okay. I'll give all three of us a word, and then you have to come up with a definition on the spot. All right, roll that. <laughs> roll so that your D6. word is neo is the prefix. Fascism. Never mind. Don't do that one. That one sucks. Neo fascism. Don't do that one. That was too easy. Okay. Uh, fallow. <laughs> fallow pragmatism is your word. <laughs> <laughs> Follow pragmatism. Uh, Victor, while you're thinking, I'll give Victor his and then I'll do it for myself. Yours is neo-fascism also. Fuck. The dice really... <laughs> I'll skip that one. Um, super subjectivity. Okay. You got to get okay. it. You got to get into that whitehead. Whitehead actually already did All that right. term. Okay. I don't know. I don't know whitehead. But... And here's okay. me. Here's me. Uh, cyber. That's a good start. Good. Cyber structuralism. I mean, in a way, follow follow pragmatism. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an easy one <laughs> because all the pragmatists I could think of before uh, Rawl or uh, before uh, I don't know are all males. Oh, right? so this is a feminist critique of it's it's a critical pragmatist tradition. Yeah, it's a critical wor word for the uh, patriarchal origins of pragmatism especially that of rorty and dewey <laughs> because they impose a kind of cultural relativism on us that's secretly a uh, a uh, hyper patriarchal view of of use and and, and pragmatic action yeah the, there you go the pragmatic is embedded in there as man as the active subject woman as the passive subject in the andro scene follow pragmatism reigns <laughs> Nice. nice. See, this um, is okay. not even difficult. Now you have like a, a dissertation chapter. <laughs> um, okay. Super, super subjectivity. Subject. 
super subjectivity um yeah so to figure this out i was like trying to find the etymology of super to see like if i could if i could come up with anything based on that it's like and above, i see that it's above or <laughs> above or beyond to great extreme degree um yeah above beyond exactly that's the main thing so i guess like i would say that super subjectivity is like the ongoing process with which our subjectivity becomes interfaced with I, i'm gonna i'm gonna like apply maybe like a cybernetic lens to it but there's probably another word that identifies this but i guess like uh super subjectivity is like the subjectivity of of, of all of us being connected through like the new subjectivity that emerges as a result of our interaction with each other through these mediums oh kind of like guess. a super organism a, nice. a super subject <laughs> so it's like the it's like the result of i guess maybe when the interaction of subjectivities through cybernetic uh, platforms beco becomes somehow self-conscious of itself. That's like the super subjectivity. So cyber, That's cool. cyber super subjectivity. Yeah, it's like exactly. the way that the modern media knits together all of our subjectivities into a single entity that reacts, <clears throat> exactly. and reacts together. <laughs> Whitehead exactly. does actually have a term called the superject. Oh, really? What does that mean? That's that's closer to a universal idea. What well, we it? call the subject, he calls the superject, because for him, even any sort of interaction involves two subjects. Oh, we could also say that the super subjectivity could just be like another another word for Hegel's like absolute <laughs> super subject. Okay, and I have to do cyber structuralism. Um, with cyber structuralism, that's good. With the critiques of structuralism by. Jacques Derrida and Roland Barthes, there have been many new interesting connections made. Uh, uh, okay, I'm trying to present this. I can't, I can't keep going with this. Um, I think we can use cyber structuralism to evaluate the cybernetic um, production of communities in spaces that are mediated by technology um, and we can observe that all, all online communities are based on three levels of unconscious expression. <laughs> uh, beginning at the bottom with the uh, zoanthropes, so the cat people, the cat boys. Uh, that's the animal. Then the, the imaginary the imaginary will be the second layer of uh, human consciousness embodied by the uh, anime avatars. And finally, who do we put <laughs> at the top? The, sig the sigmas? The sigmas, the sigmas, because it's a the Greek sigmas. letter, expresses the linguistic aspect of human consciousness. So there we go. That is a cyber structure. I decided that. <laughs> and Levi Strauss would be proud. Actually, I decided that super subjectivity is really just a, another, like an academic way of identifying the sigma. See, we have a new unified theory and it only took us six dice rolls and 10 minutes. Because it's beyond, because sigma is is beyond the categorization, right? It like doesn't fit into the, into this, into the spectrum. So it's, it's just the it's remainder, it's beyond. the excess. Hey, that's mm -hmm. a fun game. Everybody coin, coin your own terms. That is a fun game. <laughs> we should do that every, we should do that every prompt? week. We should start the show over. Like the uh, the walrus things in South Park. You just choose the balls and then make something up based on what comes out. It's a perfect Family Guy episode. Yeah. Gary Coleman. <laughs>
All right, why don't we get to our neologism of the day today, which is techno-feudalism. We watched a lecture, and techno-feudalism is Yanis Varoufakis' word for something that's concurrent with capitalism. Um, I'm just going to insert the clip so we don't have to rehash that. I think it's good to just, wait, now, as a, wait, are you as a segue. Are you interrupting before the clip or after the clip? Uh, either one. Okay. You, deci- you decide based on what I say, <laughs> which is that as a kind of segue into talking about techno-feudalism from capitalism, I just evoke actually Zizek's sort of opening for that is that the public use of reason is under threat. That's the kind of, that's the kind of um, uh, 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 emblem of the talk is that public use of reason is under threat and the private use of reason is on the rise. And I think that's a great way to distinguish useless neologisms from useful neologisms. Is that Are they made in the service of public reason to help people understand or are they made for private gain or to reinforce existing structures and existing institutions? Are they a kind of method of you know economic calculation the way we you know, coin new terms to get ahead in the academic rat race, the way we coin buzzwords to make our products seem more appealing, and those sorts of ideas are the ways that economists and law and 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 jurists will come up with terms to, you know, make a ridiculous process like money printing sound like something good, like quantitative easing, when it really just means printing fucking money and nothing else. Is it being used in the sense of private reasoning or public reasoning as could you, de- could you to- define like the, the public use of reason in this context? Yeah, the public use of reasoning is a distinction Kant made. So public use of reasoning is different from private use of reasoning. If you watch the video, I don't really need to rehash it because this is Zizek's opening, but public use of reasoning is in good Kantian way when you're reasoning according to the laws prescribed by rationality, right? When you're a rational individual, you don't require the, say, you're you're out of your immaturity of your reasoning. You don't need to be led by others. You think for yourself. In Kantian terms, you know, it's it's the self-prescription of laws by rationality, right? You prescribe your own laws and you accord to them. You don't let other people tell you what to do. And when Public reasoning comes along, right, in, in the Kantian sense. This is because you're having an opening discussion. You're having an open discussion with the public and public intellectuals involved in, it's it's like real talk, right, as opposed to private reasoning, which is interested. This is supposed to be disinterested reasoning. Mm-hmm. Right. And private reasoning is something that, you know, if you're a clergy member, the church will determine things that you can say and cannot say. And for Kant, that's fine, as long as you can also have public reason. Yeah, and it's it's worth adding, too, that this was like a, a distinction that Rawls also ran with. Like the whole point of Rawls' theory of justice was to determine principles that could be consistent with yeah. public use of reason. Because laws are inherently coercive, right? You cannot make a just society based on laws. You, ha- you cannot coerce people, as I've been learning about. You cannot coerce people into being good. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, whatever. But- what those laws have to do is is almost be in, internalized and and reconfirmed in the individual mind through a process of of, of critique, right? Critic critiquing the tools of cognition and consciousness and logic, right? And then, so you can't coerce people. You have to you have to lead people into the growth that they need to 
have in order to become a reasonable, mature, self-sufficient individual in in the Kantian sense, yeah. as opposed to leading people by the hand, which is private reasoning. You know, I, I prescribe my reasons. Wait, I need to get to this clip. That Are this we going to is... get to the clip? Okay, okay. Can we do that first? And this is yeah, techno-feudalism. We, we can get to the clip. The point is, is a neologism coined in the interest of public reason, not private reason, like buzzwords or fashionable nonsense or whatever other crap. Wait, that's all we were saying with all of that? Okay, anyway, techno-feudalism, what is it? It means the end of capitalism in one sense, but it's also concurrent with capitalism in another sense. Here is Giannis explaining it. Insert. There is something tremendous happening now in capitalism. It's no longer the old market, profit, productivity, and so on. It's no, no longer capitalism. Can you develop this? Yeah. Since 2008, the great cr uh, financial crash, capitalism is on a drip feed. It's being kept alive through constant injections of money from the central banks. That has never happened before. It started in 2008. In 1929, it didn't happen. That's why all the banks closed down. Mm. So the banking system and the stock exchange had 12 years of getting used to becoming addicted to central bank money being pumped their way during difficult moments. Uh, it's my crazy theory that capitalism has already evolved out of itself. We, it has been transformed into another system. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because for me, capitalism requires two things. Firstly, profit to drive it. It's like you know, a petrol engine that needs petrol. Capitalism needs profit, private profit to drive it. Capital accumulation, as we Marxists used to say, okay? And the other thing is that exploitation takes place in markets. That's the whole point about capitalism. In feudalism, there was, there was no market exploitation. You had the peasants, they were growing rubbish, yeah, yeah. wheat and potatoes and cauliflower, I don't know what it is, that they were growing. And then the, sher the sheriff, on behalf of the Lord, would come and take half of it or 60% of it. There was no market. It was just expropriation. It is with the enclosures and the eviction of the peasants who then become uh, suppliers of labor at any price that you have the creation of the working class and the labor market. There was no labor market before that. Okay? So exploitation takes place through markets. Money markets, land markets, house markets, labor markets. But now, after 12 years of the 2008 crisis and beyond, we have the replacement of profit by central bank money. That is the new fuel of the system, of this exploitative system. And the steady encroachment into the space of markets of platforms. Amazon. The moment you go into Amazon or Facebook, the moment you, you enter Facebook, you're outside of capitalism. You're not in capitalism anymore. You because, explain. Yeah, you go into Facebook, right? Let's say you want to, to, to sell your stuff, to you know, advertise your business in Facebook. You go in, you, pay, you use your credit card, you pay money to Zuckerberg, and some more people see your, your advertisements. You go in there to meet your friends. Uh, you want to advertise... Uh, this, this evening, you go and pay money. One person owns the whole digital space. It is the equivalent 
of stepping outside in Ljubljana. Imagine, yeah, just science fiction for a moment. Imagine you step out in Ljubljana, on the streets of Ljubljana tonight, and you look around and you think, oh my God, all these buildings belong to one person. Everything that is traded in the shops that I see is controlled by one person who decides what prices are charged, what prices are not charged, who can trade, who can't trade, who can buy, who can't buy. And moreover, imagine that Ljubljana operated like Facebook does or Amazon does, whereby what your eyes see is determined by one person, by the algorithm of one person, who if he wants you not to see something, you will never see it in that digital space. This is not a market. This is a fief, a fiefdom. It's a digital fiefdom. It's a platform. Those platforms make a lot of money. Um, so the left has been desperately trying to bring capitalism down, but he says they ran out of time. Capitalism brought itself down, or at least is in the process of bringing itself down. Um, we are left here with the question of the market, because the market still exists in certain cases. And I guess the point here is that uh, the bottom rung, the proletariat or the precariat, do not have any access to the market because they don't have any assets. So they become the people that are exploited by monopolistic corporations that own own an entire space that there's no access to for everybody for anybody else. And they profit off your every click, your every view. They get to show you ads all day. They know what you're thinking, where you are, et cetera, et cetera. You're basically working with a, or providing value with a form of labor that is not traditionally labor. Yeah. I mean, he, the capitalism and market exploitation under this techno-feudalist claim is that you know, capitalism is on life support. Markets are on life support. They survive since 2008. They survive solely on enormous cash injections from the central banks. And what capitalism formally ran on, as we heard, capitalism runs on two things, private profit and market exploitation. And private profit is dropping off. The laboring class is shrinking. And on the other hand, and on the other hand, um, the new the central banks have taken on a, a completely different role, and they are supporting markets, which are on life support. But what we're seeing is the incursion of platforms into market space. Platforms are coming in and taking over. So when you go on Facebook, you're not in capitalism anymore. That's the claim, right? On Facebook, you're not in capitalism anymore. You're outside of capitalism because you're on a platform. And it, and again, it becomes more like a feudal system there because some one person owns everything you see and in fact determines in this case what you do and don't see. And they determine what you can and can't buy, who can buy, who can't buy. And, every, and they get a cut of every single transaction that happens on their platform. It's completely, according to Yanis, is outside of capitalism because it's a platform which is coming to replace markets. So you don't have those two things from capitalism anymore. You don't have market exploitation because nothing is profitable anymore. And the laboring class is shrinking, which is the key market, the labor market of capitalism. And you have the incursion of platforms replacing traditional markets and those traditional markets which are still around are surviving only on these enormous cash injections from central banks and he describes the kind of dynamics of those cash injections and the way they just sort of further impoverish people who already don't have the buying power right 
and and not to mention the the after 2008 right this is the situation massive cash injections and platforms which as you remember you know facebook twitter youtube all those major platforms today are are were born in the mid 2000s right just before the big crash so just in fucking time yeah i mean i think it was a really interesting account i really like verifocus i find him um very likable and like his i find his points to be like really insightful in terms of like defining it as in or out of capitalism i mean i find i guess it reminds me there there is like sometimes a kind of desire i find among theorists although i guess he's technically an economist and not a not a theorist oh, he's a but like, he's a marxist economist just like marx was marx was marx and he was an economist right right um like to kind of like the the urge to like define a new age like now we're leaving this age into this new age like i don't know i guess he the, the couple of examples he has like so one thing that i found kind of interesting and i by the way i read a little article that he wrote also for project syndicate where he kind of also goes on to define techno feudalism um but one of the things that i guess i was a bit confused about is he like the, the main example he uses is like facebook and google but then he also mentions amazon <clears throat> and like i guess but then he doesn't explain how like amazon applies to that same thing because like i get how there's like certain platforms that we all use like twitter um facebook they control everything that we use um, but then like, I don't really understand how like Amazon's not just a capitalist. Like, I don't understand how, how Amazon is also techno feudalist. And I didn't notice him explain that. He just kind of mentioned it and bunched it up with these other things. And it seems a bit different well, to me. Isn't it just like Amazon is the same thing. It's a platform. When you go onto Amazon, you're not in a mall. You're not in a free market. You're in a completely different place. You're not in a market. You're on a platform and it's not you know, laws and legislation by some central body that determines the platform's rules. It's a single person. It's Jeff Bezos who determines what you see, what you don't see, what you can buy, what you can't buy, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same thing. The thing is Amazon Amazon has competitors. Yeah. Though. So I, I agree with what you're saying. It's yeah. You can you can still buy from uh yeah, or just eBay, or just like Alibaba. You can buy from you can buy from. I'm any thinking retail of retail stores, stores but they're all like particular to Canada or or North America. So I don't want to. Yeah, like. Well, Best Buy. Are they Best significant buy, compa- buy, competitors? Though I mean, I mean, I think eBay is a significant competitor. So like, so is I mean, I think a lot of these different retailers are. I mean, Walmart. You can buy online. I mean, it's true. Like, if anything. I would say that Amazon is becoming like a bit monopolistic, but that's still like a, p- a part of capitalism, right? Like, like being a monopoly is a capitalist phenomenon, right? So, so I don't, you know. I'm oh, not- look at the, the liberal is quoting Lenin. Thank you very much, Victor. I, anyway, just to the point, um, what he's saying is like when you're when you're on the platform, the platform becomes the dictator of everything that happens within that platform rather than the market. So on Amazon, it's a fiefdom. It's not the only fiefdom that exists, but once you're within Amazon, then every decision that can be made there is made by Amazon's directors. Yeah. It's like those those old brick and mortar stores like Amazon, I mean, not like Amazon, like uh, Walmart, what you were saying. The, I mean, those are still capitalist spaces, but... Even even when you shop online and buy stuff from whatever 
Walmart, Best Buy, whatever, online. You're still kind of being routed through a capitalist system. And with, I guess with Amazon, it's it's completely different, right? Because they own the platform. They own the means of transportation. They own the supply lines. They own everything from like the point of consumption right back to the, almost right back to the point of production. And even when you have control of the point of production, Amazon can do basically whatever they want. They set the terms, not the producers. Yeah, But I- even then, it still seems like there's something to the idea that it's not a market, it's a platform, there's a distinction to be made there. And we should be clear, it's not like capitalism has disappeared, it's just that we have capitalism plus this other thing. And here's a bit of a- life support. Here's a bit of a provocative question. Um, What, with the neologism thing, is the techno required here or is all feudalism already techno-feudalism? The techno here just means it's managed by phone data specifically, but feudalism is never non-technological. Whether you own all the good horses while the church keeps everyone distracted or you own all the good servers while Ariana Grande keeps you distracted, it's sort of the same mechanism, no? Yeah, maybe. Maybe techno is not the greatest term. Maybe neo-feudalism. I don't know. Just put two at the end. Feudalism two. It's like something new again. That, let's, let's just put the whole word there, right? Something new. We don't know what it quite what it is yet, but it seems like it's not capitalism, and it has very similar traits to feudalism from before capitalism. Like that's the that's being contracted into one word, techno feudalism, right? So, let, I, I what I find I think like I guess. I guess like the difficulty I have with with these kinds of like coining new ways of talking about or a new age is that like I end up getting a bit fixated on like, well, what's the definition of feudalism? What's the definition of capitalism? And then like, is it really the same as the and then it's like, well, and then I I and then I all of a sudden kind of snap out of it. And I'm like, well, who cares? Like the phenomenon he's pointing out, like makes sense, right? Like like that is happening. Like people are. So, like, I guess on the one hand, like, I agree with what he says about how this is sort of like changing our economy and like, but then, but I don't know if I agree, like, and I also don't care if it is feudalism or if it is like, who cares? Like, it kind of reminds me of the thing I I was, I I kind of harp on often, like back when there was that whole discussion about whether Trump is a fascist or not. And it's like, everyone wants to call him a fascist. And it's like, who gives a shit? Just like point to the specific things that he does that are bad and condemn those. And it's like here is it feudalism? Is it not? Like, I kind of think who gives a shit? Let's just point out the shitty things that are happening specifically so that we can analyze them and make sense of them. I don't think the term is that useful. And I don't find myself, I feel, I feel agnostic and somewhat unconvinced that it really is something new. And I also just don't think it matters. I know. I think it's pretty important. I mean, I'm always saying, you know, we shouldn't fetishize definitions, but at the same time, they're important because it acts like, you know, what Lacan call a point de capitant kind of brings all of these forces into relief and gives them a kind of unity. And if they don't really have it, then, then maybe future critique will, you know, hone the concept or change it to reflect reality a little bit better. But I mean, what we define things all the time based on, you know, when, when, what is the age of majority? When are you an adult, right? Is that not an important definition? 
is it not important if that girl you're trying to sleep with is 15 years old or 18 years old? I guess it doesn't matter because definitions just go out the window, right? What is a child, really, right? That's well, no, just no. a definition. No, 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 no Well, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that's not, it's that's, I'm I don't being think, flippant, obviously. I don't think that's. I don't think that's a. I th- but that's I completely that's, different that that's because that's everyday because... life and not theory. But I don't see a big no, difference. No, 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 no. Here's the difference. The difference is that we are in the business of being like academic theoreticians. We are in the business of, of observing phenomena and making sense of them. And I guess my worry with these labels is that like, so feudalism, being able to call something new feudalism, it has a rhetorical power. It has a rhetorical appeal because it's like something that was bad that we got beyond. And then people can kind of feel good and be like, oh yeah, like of course Facebook and you know Google, they're feudalistic. And it's like, you know, we feel good and about like about condemning them for that. But then like, I, th- I guess what I feel gets lost, which is more important, is like, well, what is the specific phenomenon that we're worried about? So like, let's talk about the way that like now, because everyone relies on these platforms, it like creates these a kind of like a kind of catch 22 where it's like, how do we get out of them? Like, so I just feel like talking at the level of specificity is just better. And I and I worry about the rhetorical appeal of these terms that kind of you can just be like, oh, yeah, of course, they're all feudalistic. Like, it's just I don't know. It just seems in the, when we're in the business of analyzing, of getting like a deep account of what's of social, economic, political phenomena, it's better to just dwell in the level of specificity. Why would that worry you, though? People get behind words, not yeah, not, I mean, not academic re- definitions. Rhetoric, well, it, it, rhetoric it worries me because it's essential part because it's because it's ideal because it's it's ideological because it risks like ideological mystification like so where you where you, where it obscures the specificity of the phenomenon like i think that Most happened people with react tr- to rhetoric they don't react to specificity of phenomenon. all discourse yeah, but, has rhetoric has a rhetorical component like that's just that's just well, language. i guess as academic as academics i feel like we should be who are you calling an academic so, like so it depends on what context we're in right so like in the political activist context where like we want to win hearts and minds i get the utility of like calling it feudalism but like in the business of just like trying to get an accurate account of social, political, economic phenomenon, I don't know how important it is. All right. Like to be able point to taken, you know. point taken. Let's stop talking about talking and actually do what you're suggesting. One second. No. Oh. Yeah, one second. Oh, Let me God. just one point about rhetoric. Okay. So, you know, the three kinds of rhetoric, right? Of course, what Aristotle says, he appeals to our pathos. He appeals to ethos. He's an authority on the subject. He's but that there's a third appeal and it's called logos is a rhetorical appeal and you appeal appeal to reasons. And he spends the next hour after that clip giving you all of the logos of this rhetorical argument. So re- rhetoric mm-hmm. and logic are connected. When you make appeals to reason, you're using logos. And I think he gives us good measurable reasons to consider why it might be worth calling this techno-feudalism instead of techno-capitalism, because we've got a clear definition of capitalism I mentioned before, and now we have something potentially different that doesn't run on private property and market exploitation anymore, right? So maybe it is worth calling it something different. Maybe not feudalism, because that's a throwback term, Maybe something else, but again, and then you just get to the point. Well, uh, okay, now let's. Who gives a shit about the word techno feudalism? Let's look at the reasons he gives for accepting such a such a yes. symbol. Let's do that now. Exactly, let's I agree. I now. agree with all that. 
<clears throat> let's do that now. I I agree. I Leave agree with all that. Like, just uh, fucking talk about talking yeah. instead of actually talking. Okay, no, but whatever, I think, I think whatever. But I still We're moving think, on. I... <laughs> the thing that you're looking for, <laughs> I think it was Victor, interesting. Is I know, but we only have like 20 minutes left. We've barely even addressed the term. The thing that we're looking for here is uh, market participation, because that's the thing that didn't exist before capitalism, supposedly existed in capitalism, and now no longer exists. But he does do a lot of talking about what ca the state of capitalism today, non-techno-feudal companies like uh, Apple and Volkswagen, he brings up a lot. Um, and the point is that uh, they are still in the market, but because they're just getting government handouts to buy back their own stock, then the asset prices for everything, for houses, are inflated such that there is no market participation for people like us who can't afford assets because they're way too fucking expensive. Um, then our only option is to become the employees for data corporations, which we are currently doing, actually. Yeah, whether you like it or not, Google yeah. tracks where you are and enriches its software through your free volunteer well, labor. We're adding value to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Yeah. We are. That's true. I mean, I will say that when he brought up the Google Maps example, I have to confess that I was like, I love Google Maps. Like, and like, I guess, like, yes, of course, like, I think it's a little unfair the way they can just capture our data. On the other hand, like I'm old enough to remember being like <laughs> young, like a young teenager or like 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 tw 11, 12 years old and like going on, on the early internet. And then back then, like if there was some software, I was really interested in atlases and maps back then, and I remember there was like atlas software. Remember MapQuest? But it was like hundreds of it was like hundreds of dollars. <laughs> yeah, no, but like this was before MapQuest, right? So like so this is, yeah, this was even before that. And I remember like the Encyclopedia Britannica or like Encarta, Microsoft Encarta. Dude, yeah. I killed fucking weeks on Encarta 95. And it and, and so those things, they might have had an atlas. And I remember being like, oh man, and I looked and it was like $300, $400. And it's like, and then all of a sudden Google Maps came out and it had like satellite views. And I was like, I can just look at this for free? Like... I understand that our data is being captured, but it's not like they're not giving us anything back in return. But, I mean, I love Google Maps. I was like a big map nerd. There's a reason I studied urban planning as well for a little while. So I get it. Like it's it, they're taking advantage of it, but it's not like we're not getting anything like that is. Uh, I mean, it, I, I consider it to improve my everyday life. It does. It, but it I mean, is, that's, but his, that's his like sort of solution to this at the end is that we all become shareholders of these new rights that are being created like we should we should have a right to yeah. google maps but we should also be like shareholders of it or at least we should have a right to dictate how our own data is used perhaps own our own data but his his ultimate solution yeah. is is yeah. corporate law reforms right reform corporate ownership that's the ultimate solution he says he loves digital technology though. Yeah. he loves it he says use it right yeah. like, use it and improve your lives with it. But don't forget that even though it seems like Google's giving something back to you, as you, as you said, are they really giving back something that wasn't just given to them from the in the first place? Are they just giving back something uh, like utilizing our infrastructures that were funded by public money or, pri or even whatever military's money, putting satellites in space, Google gets to tap into all those, pretend it belongs to them, and then give it back to us as if they're doing us a fucking favor. 
but because of the corporate ownership model that Google exists under that Yanis says we should look at, the ownership is divided into a liquid ownership system of shares rather than- Yeah, was he talking about, was it clear to you whether he was talking about that those shares would be distributed to like all the employees or everybody? Like that wasn't clear to me. I think he's just saying one vote, one share, and that's it. No, non, non-transferable. I guess to whoever wants to buy one, right? He said like, let's make shares into like library cards, right? They got your name on it. They give you certain privileges, but you can only have one and you can't sell them. That's- that's kind of how he, well, one of the interesting things that he it. said, I remember, was like, if you do that, the size of these companies will automatically go way down. And he said something like Google is like 200,000 employees. Yeah. But then it'll go down to like maybe 20,000, which is more. And I, that was confusing to me, too. I wasn't exactly clear about like why that's the case. I mean, the thing is, one of the things I have to say, like watching this stuff was like, you know, it's really compelling. Like Yanis Varoufakis is super compelling, but I'm also don't have almost any economics training. So like a lot of the stuff that he was saying, I just have no way of like verifying whether it makes sense or not. Like I, w- I just kind of have to take his word for it that like that's going to happen or like that the math works out, right? But but to, to that, so I was a little puzzled by that. He said, you can't, if you have two, you can't have 200,000 decision makers. It's impossible. You'd never do anything. Right, yeah, that was 10,000 so, is why, about which is why, the upper limit. <laughs> Which is why I was also confused. So I was like, okay, so these shares are going to get distributed, but it can't just be to anybody because if every, like, so if it's limited to 10,000, then would it only be the employees? Like, that's what made me think that maybe he was just talking about, like, when you work for a company, you get like a share, like a library card, right? Like, because if if it's limited to 10,000... I, I think we're going to have to wait for his next book for him to elaborate yeah. <laughs> on that thing, which he said is coming out this year, hopefully. So we'll have to, yeah, I'd be curious. We'll have to wait to see. Maybe we'll do a follow-up episode when it comes out, pick up some of this stuff again. But I think the basic argument is fairly clear and doesn't require a whole lot of background economic knowledge. He does a pretty good job of you know explaining his well first of all what he was doing when he was a very very brief briefly the minister of finance for greece and sort of then his overall sort of theory right he he in august 2020 when british gdp was announced to have fallen 20% 15 minutes later the london stock exchange raised by oh, yeah. 3% and he said that was the moment when i thought okay this isn't capitalism anymore this is something different because if gdp falls then there's no way that the stock exchange should go up. That doesn't make sense. There's something else going on there. And that's when he gives the whole 2008 explanation where since then, investors have become extremely used to you know, value falling, stock markets falling, and then getting a huge cash injection immediately after. So actually, the, the expectation of getting that central bank money is what pushed the stock market up, which is not capitalism that is fucking because what should nuts. push the stock market up yeah, under nuts. capitalism is real value being produced by workers in the factories, but that's not what's happening. It's a drip feed, he's saying, of money from central banks being handed to banks, being handed to corporations who use it, as Pills said, to buy back their own shares and increase their own values, which reflects no production whatsoever. It reflects no value creation. Venture investment, like I think he mentioned, I don't know if, if this is still true, but I think at the time, like he was talking about how Uber still has never made a profit. Um, they might have made a profit like recently for the first time, but but I, but like in general, like yeah, they haven't made 
a profit. It's that they've been living off of like venture capitalist, uh, like kind of infusions. Yeah. And speculative Isn't it investment. So yeah. fucking it's weird to you that these investors are are so sure that this quantitative easing is gonna occur immediately that they're willing to like bet their bet their profits on it, that it's that regular. I don't even pay attention to this shit, but that they can bank on the government just injecting money whenever there's like a bad report that's fucking crazy to me. yeah i mean that's that yeah, socialism crazy. for the wealthy kind of idea right they get exactly. they get the handouts and this leads and then to when, again no faith in the government and he said this uh he gave this little recipe victor that you can probably connect with easier than the than the economic stuff he said if you have a combination of bullshit jobs absolutely no promise of access to assets which was what kept this going for so long in the first place then no faith in the government because the government keeps doing shit like this um in plain sight just because everybody's too busy arguing about uh ben shapito on twitter um then this is a <laughs> gift to fascism this is the exact conditions for in which uh fascism thrives yeah, no, I've seen... I've Which is ironic because it's the same condition he said he needed to exploit when he was the finance minister of Greece, <laughs> yeah. which shows you... Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, it's an opportunistic thing. He was a politician, blah, 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 whatever. But I mean, it's the situation that's created that allows... I mean, I would trust Yanis to intervene in such a way that would be beneficial, but then you can't trust everybody to do that. It creates the openings for fascists to create... Well, I think a lot of people, I actually read an uh, an article, I think it was an article, I don't know, I saw something and I've seen this come up a couple times, I've seen this argument brought up a, a few times and I think it was in, in reference to like the January 6th um, stuff and, and I, the, the opinion was basically like, hey, we need to like not forget that like a lot of the reason why this is happening is the financial crisis, right? That like a lot of the reason why like Trumpism and like the rise of all this stuff, like we can trace its roots back to kind of like a loss of faith in like institutional stability, economic stability, um, you know, being able to just like get a job that you can live off of like the kind of the end of all that. And I think, I mean, I find that to be pretty convincing. So I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, 2008 was our Black Friday, right? It was, uh, it was huge and it really just, I mean, for this argument, and I think I think it's quite right that 2008 completely changed the landscape of the future, and it created opportunities for centralizations of wealth, which is again another basis for techno feudalism to work, right? Because you only have the central banks only need to worry about a much smaller group of people who hold all the money, rather than having a much more equally distributed kind of wealth, which would then. Um, one of the one of the main things that he doesn't seem worried about, or at least has an explanation for, that you hear a lot on like I don't know CNN or NBC or whatever, that inflation's going to take over if we were to adopt certain policies. And he says we have all the conditions for inflation, and we're not seeing any inflation because of this whole buyback process. Yeah, yeah. This is so. This this is him just countering the kind of traditional right-wing economic take is if you do these massive cash injections, you know, you're going to create all this inflation and price everybody out of the markets. But the reason it doesn't happen is because of a, some of the stuff we already went over, right? Like, you know, after 2008 was there's this proliferation of precarity and bullshit jobs going from 
from what was already bad to worse in many in many cases, right? We all you know know what happened in the immediate aftermath of two thousand and eight, um, but also because wealth had become so concentrated in the hands of a few, um, so that you know you couldn't. When, when the banks get all these cash injections, they're not going to give them out to as loans anymore, right? Like they're not giving out. I mean, I get. I guess they kind of are again a little bit, but they're not being as reckless with, say, that like um, those mortgage lending they were doing that led up to the two thousand and eight crash. Yeah, like the the Fannie Mae. Yeah, and Freddie like Mac. those those so called triple A loans. You go go watch uh, go watch the Big Short to learn all about that stuff. They're not doing it anymore. Yeah, it's like. The one fucking thing they learned from the financial crisis is not to give money to regular people. So regular people will just, I guess, never have any assets again for the rest of time. That's, I mean, that's why feudalism is a is kind of a perfect. Word I mean, that for seems it. like the case now with capitalism supposedly on life support, right? It's just the idea that you know prices are actually dropping for basic things but the, like you said the asset market prices are going up and it, it is precisely because of job precarity there's not a lot of money like income equality has gone way down so when the banks get the when the central banks get the money from the european bank for instance and then they they're going to lend it to you know volkswagen as his example who instead of creating a competitor car with tesla to get break into the you know break into the car market get their own mo- competing model out there they're not doing that anymore right because people don't have the don't have the liquid funding they don't have the liquidity to buy any of that stuff so instead they take the money they go to the stock market and they buy back their own shares and increase their share value which increases their private wealth as opposed to you know in, uh, you know expropriating wealth from markets in that way so that's one reason and then the other reason again is private equity firms right they don't make profits what they do is they go in they buy a company they split it into the service side and the physical asset side they take loans out based on the physical asset side and then they pay themselves back for that again increasing their share value but not really increasing not really creating any value in the in the old sort of theory of labor sense they're not creating any new value there they're paying themselves they're they're aggregating money so no new value being created means no inflation in in this whole situation i guess that's my sort of normie non-economic take based on what he said about this so you get higher prices for things like houses and and like that sort of stuff but then you get labor problems that prevent people from breaking into those markets so it's just the pattern that's going so life support just means you know yeah exactly no prospects for the future until something radically changes and then and plus since all the value is in like physical assets and then bonuses to the ceos then the company doesn't have to pay taxes because they didn't make any profit yeah, that's so capital gains never, tax. There's no capital gains. <laughs> so it never goes back to the public. Plus they can hire, you know, drivers or delivery guys as like uh cheap contractors that have to use their own cars uh f- for their job and uh, without having to pay any benefits of it. So not nothing ever returns to the public. It just gets siphoned 
yeah. increasingly towards the top. It's the a corporate CEOs bank account. Give themselves bonuses. Yeah, he was saying, you know, the, some of these corporations have huge savings accounts now. They've never had that before. What, like, why is that? Normally, when they make money, it's already spoken for, right? Because they have these sort of, you know, on-demand shipping and really tightly coordinated supply lines. So that money is usually just spoken for, right? As soon as they get it, it goes back out, generates some new transactions, right? But now, because Again, with COVID too, the supply lines have broken down. The futures markets are all backed up. And whoever bought the next wave of, say, transportation space or the rights to access a certain market, whoever has those, 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 that privilege is being pushed back into the future. And so you have buildups of products, you have buildups of savings accounts that never were there before, and you have these like, sort of private equity strategies that Facebook is doing to say in the national health where they're just taking money right out of the system without giving any back in the form of taxes. So you don't have inflation in the way that we would normally expect it to happen when you just print money and devalue currency and those sorts of things. Because because the because again, it's operating according to a new logic, not late capitalism, but early, early techno-feudalism. Did you see this? I had a friend uh, this week, actually, and she bought a car like off a lot and it was a used car the the lot called her back um and said we want to buy the car back for more than you bought it for and i was like what the fuck what what is happening so i looked into it uh the cost for used cars in canada has gone up like 30 to 40% because there are no new cars because of the supply chain disruption because again this thing was timed so that they didn't have to have any storage space for like the parts of a car and whatever so the chip shortage now you don't have this one part that you're 100 percent dependent on now everything is just sitting around and you can't make new cars the price of used cars goes up to the point that someone who just sold it to you wants to buy it back because they realize they undervalued it it's just so fucked also I cannot get my goddamn video card. Yeah, still video cards are... are. I'm a video editor without a video card. They are completely out of reach. Same with things like phones, right? I thought I thought stuff was going to get so much better when Canada passed that law where they weren't allowed to lock phones anymore. And that I was thinking, oh, it's going to create this huge market of used phones and everything's going to be cheaper. Nope, that was all fucked up. That... That that evaporated after 2008, that possibility, I'm guessing, but even more so with COVID and the supply line disruptions. But that system between sort of 2008 and, two th and, well, and the emergence of the pandemic, that was sort of working and not really creating any inflation. And then the supply line disruption really just kicked everything into the like f first gear. And now it's like... Now it's just now it's just all going to the shitter, and and now we have to ask questions like, how, okay, so how do we get out of this? What's next? There's one more thing I wanted to uh, bring up to bring up just to uh, conclude this a little bit. At the end, Zizek and he sort of agreed on this point, and that was about rhetoric with China. So if I can recall it correctly, you're gonna hear, or and you already are hearing. Uh, with Trump and even with Biden, I think, 
Uh, I haven't been paying attention, to be honest. But I think the rhetoric is going to increase that, you know, Cold War with China, China's going to be the enemy, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they kind of warn against this, which is a something I've never thought about before, and I don't have enough uh, knowledge to think about. But I'll just repeat what they said, basically. Um, you're going to hear rhetoric about increasing antagonism with China. And that's because the business interests that control the United States, big tech and Wall Street, are not allowed into China. And that's why they are competitors, because there are no tech companies in like the Eurozone, really, that can compete with Google and Facebook, because Google and Facebook are allowed there, so they can monopolize it. But China doesn't let them in, so they have these actual good competitors. Um, I don't know what they are, Weibo, Alibaba, those, I think those are two of them. But they have actual competitors that Wall Street cannot put their money in. So the source of this antagonism, the material source long back in the chain, is that these are competitors to U.S. financial interests. And then we get it trickled down in the rhetoric that's saying, we're going to have a Cold War with China. Um, and then all the anti-China rhetoric is actually based in that financial lockout or that financial interest. Yeah. I mean, it was a really interesting point. I mean, I, I've I've really sympathized with the people who who listen to this and sort of you know they look to China as a kind of possible alternative model to sort of American capitalism. But I mean, obviously, as a as a politician, he kind of says, you know, of course we have to say, you know, the authoritarianism of the Chinese regime needs to be called out and opposed. Everything that goes on with the Uyghurs and the student protests in Hong Kong and the ridiculous situation around Taiwan, all that stuff needs to be criti criticized. But we have to remember that China is not an imperialist country. It never has been. It's never held colonies. It's never even been colonized in its entirety. Only little pieces of it have been. So it's not a colonial power. So what it does is, like you said, it engages in mutually beneficial trading as opposed to sort of the predatory kind of capitalist techniques that America uses, right? And so Trump started this, and because you know the eurozone is is what he called a, a investment desert for big tech, and big tech is the future of you know profits. We, we think so. Who has the only competitors? China, right? So Trump started this war with Huawei, which was held, which whose whose leader was held in a Canadian prison for quite some time, which is kind of strange. They wanted them ex expedited to America, all that shit. Biden's continuing it, not changing course, actually doubling down on it because they want financial control of you know China, which is cut off from Wall Street, and they want control of the big tech market, which China again has cut off. So they're going to say. Well, we're just not letting China build infrastructure anywhere, and not in Europe because they don't invest. Let's go to Africa. Well, we have to we have to get China out of there, and we have to build our own infrastructure because they're going to spy on us, which they never do. Well, I know, and I can't remember which country it was in, but it's uh, an African country. China came in and offered to build this giant, like, governmental center for a, a pan-African kind of a governmental organization and they miked the whole building <laughs> like the whole building was biked up not that this is a thing to uh to hold against them as opposed to the united states because the united states has been doing that shit everywhere in the world for for 60 years but 
mutually beneficial. We'll say it's a little bit one-sided. But what they did say in the, at the end of this uh, talk was that leftists should not be like blindly pro-China, but they should look to those progressive elements in China that will inevitably rise up. I think it was Zizek who said inevitably in a true Hegelian manner that eventually there's going to be progressive elements up in China. But yeah, you know, uh, the, the the changes in the means of production will ultimately come into conflict with traditional relations, <laughs> social relations, yeah. right? They called them a Confucian right-wingers, I guess. <laughs> I have no idea about the politics of China, but that's interesting that they... We got our our religious fundamentalist conservatives, and they have their Confucian conservatives. Yeah, that's that's one thing to look for in 2022, very carefully. Anyway, is the rhetoric around China and this whole Cold War thing is is it's not it shouldn't happen. It's got to be stopped. It cannot be in a Cold War, a, a potentially hot war. But another interesting thing that they pointed out too was the pres the president of China. Uh, said, Xi said that um, China's going to lower its growth target in 2022. They've engineered all of this growth. China has been a, a massive success in pulling people out of poverty, but now they're finding that the growth rate is creating class conflict with the with those right-wing sort of Chinese capitalists. And so Xi's going to step in and lower the growth rate target so that that class antagonism fails to sort of you know, get too bad. And that's part of the sort of progressive element that he was referring to in, in China is that these progressive elements aren't going to be contained by this sort of American aggression, this, this sort of aggressive investing strategy. It's not going to be contained. But again, this sort of they also mentioned that the, the, the model of China is not sustainable, but we'll have to see what the future brings. None of us are really qualified to talk about markets and global exchange, but we are kind of qualified to talk about rhetoric. So being fanatically pro-China or being fanatically anti-China, both of them are, are probably wrong. Yeah, you got to be critical, but also open, I guess you'd say. Just not too I'm going to be looking out for that, that anti-China rhetoric and where it's coming from. Because I, I've never heard this kind of articulation before, that it's the financial interests that are being locked out, that somewhere are paying someone who's paying someone who's paying someone to stoke rhetoric of a Cold War. And of course you expect that, right? You of course assume that there's some financial interest behind everything we hear, but also at the bottom of it, materially, there's a lack of hope. Yeah, and I think also just a big, at least in the American context too, just like such a big disappointment with Obama, right? Like he came in with all this hope and change message, and then he just ended up doing everything that those like Wall Street economists I mean, wanted him to do. Same with Biden completely, I think. I mean, Biden's in a different context. Like that's not surprising though. In a way, I think like what was just, it was just more surprising in the context of Obama because I think back at that time, there was still a bit more faith that that rhetoric would be true you know we were coming out of eight years of george w bush neoconservatism and like you know kind of neo-imperialism to use another uh another term right like in, in in the middle east and everyone was like okay good that era is over now we have a progressive um who's going to come in and deal with this financial crisis and create opportunities um so i think it was just more so whereas with biden i feel like everybody who was voting for him knew that it was going to be 
you know, I don't think there's any real hope that that Biden would would actually like, you know, bring in something new. Uh, whereas I think with with Obama, there really was uh, a kind of hope that there'd be some change. There you know? was a pretty fire indictment that he gave about halfway through, which was equality and justice are just or equality and social justice are just bourgeois claptrap. And I don't believe in it at all. Just appealing to your, your bourgeois conscience and liberating people actually requires changing the ownership of rights to have shares and who can own shares and how. Yeah, that's just he's just being a crypto normativist, though. He's like, you know, these are just bourgeois concepts. But then let me make an argument that relies on on normative beliefs about like the betterness of, of the world. Well, you don't get that. I don't think I, I don't think liberals get the get to have a monopoly on normative arguments. It's just pointing I'm out the flaw of one normative argument and offering another normative argument that's a lot better. <laughs> well, I agree. I mean, I agree with that. I, I guess I just think that critiquing the well, I mean, I guess he's like underlying one those things in a narrow in a narrow way, but I guess it just seems to me that like he's arguing for a kind of social well, justice. It's, even though it's he's well at the social same time. washing, right? Just like we have greenwashing, they have kind of social justice washing, right? We see it all the time, especially the ways that corporations set up grassroots movements and fund charities and all that sort of way that capitalism launders itself into feeling like it's socially just and equitable and all that fucking messaging we get. And then, and then, like, talk about activists picking up rhetoric. Then, when activists who are kind of like centrists and pick up on this shit and go out and say, you know, capitalism's good. We've generally have a better quality of life than we had a hundred years ago. Blah blah blah. All that, all that bullshit. That is a direct reflection of it. It's just people parroting bourgeois talking points. It's not doing anything except, you know, yeah. greenwashing the social justice version of greenwashing. Oh, well, I mean, I certainly agree with that. I mean, I would rather talk about um, something concrete that would make people's lives better the way Varoufakis was, as opposed to just like talking about the label of social justice and human rights or whatever. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, that's right. I guess more what I was objecting to is like some idea that, you know, oh, we're not actually like we don't believe in those things at all. Like you can say you don't believe in just like appealing to them. That's fine. And being more specific, but just to be like, <clears throat> that is what he said. He said it's, it's nothing just words, but clap. Yeah. yeah and it, okay. So maybe, so maybe I misunderstood what I misunderstood. What he, what he meant. Yeah. That's our, our brief analysis of it. Uh, if you want to watch the full thing, it's worth watching. Zizek is quieter than I've ever seen him actually. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. That was <laughs> that was amazing. I wonder if shocking. his mic was under control or if he just developed uh, some self-control that I think he loves listening oh, okay. to Varoufakis. That was the sense I got. I my the sense I got was like he's like, "Oh, I think Varoufakis might be one of his like favorite people I'm to listen to." I'm here for that bromance for sure. Yeah, um he's pretty good at his moderator role anyway. I I thought Zizek did awesome. I should meant I should mention Yeah, I think so too. They didn't advertise this, I don't think, but the Progressive International is a thing that they're both part of, and I think it had something to do with putting on this uh, talk. But the Progressive International is Zizek's on there, Varoufakis is on there, uh, also Cornell West, Noam Chomsky, Corbyn. And it is an international organization that supports uh, organizations in, in different countries. There was one, one Canadian guy that I saw that was in there too. Um, so it's worth following if you wanna if you wanna see what the international left is doing. I think there's uh, enough clout on that 
council of members that uh, uh, Nikki Nikki uh, Ashton is the Canadian part of the NDP. Oh, she's a member of the NDP. Yeah, yeah, she's on there. Council of the Progressive International. Very cool. They don't have a they don't have a Patreon, but I think that's uh, one thing I'm going to join up. That was that was fun. I enjoyed that, and uh, I will. We will talk again soon. You've heard from us, and there's a yeah, there's a lot more where this All came right, from on the uh, on uh, the links in the description, so you can just watch it. Uh, see if you agree with our our analysis of the neologism, which I think we all agree in this case is fine. Um, neologism mm -hmm. can be annoying sometimes, of course. And uh, play play academic Mad Libs with your friends. I can. <laughs> it's fun. We should do that again. We should uh, definitely do that again. Just do it to Matt and not tell him what's happening. Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. We should surprise Matt <laughs> give, on the next episode the with, with the game. Anyway, uh, <laughs> good to talk yeah. to you guys. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will be back next week. All right. Bye, pills. Bye, pill politics. <laughs> <laughs>